0: Hey, I'm Curious City intern, Linnea Dominic. We're continuing to work on new formats for our podcast. So, for this week's episode, we return to a favorite from the archives. And stick around at the end to hear more about how the school year is going, especially for some communities where accessing the internet is a challenge. Reporter Jesse Dukes takes it from here.
1: The fog comes on little cat. It sits looking over city and harbor, on silent haunches, and then moves on.
2: That voice is Carl Sandburg, reading a famous poem he wrote one morning in Chicago from a bench in Grant Park. Sandburg is the subject of a question from Ryan Sowers. Ryan wants to know, where did Carl Sandburg live and work in Chicago? Before I started working on this question, all I knew about Carl Sandburg was he called Chicago the city of the big shoulders. But it turns out that Sandberg's relationship with Chicago goes way beyond that nickname. The events he witnessed here, the people he met, and the places he encountered helped shape his writing and launch his literary career. And his relationship with the city would continue to influence him throughout his life. Sandberg wasn't just a major American poet. He was also a journalist, political radical, Abraham Lincoln biographer, and folk singer. And I have to say, learning about him has been pretty amazing. Some of the things he wrote about Chicago a century ago seem like they could have been written today. He wrote about corruption, racism, inequality, and violence. But he also loved the hubbub of the city and its people. So, to answer Ryan's question, we'll hear how Sandberg drew inspiration from the city streets he wandered, the newspapers where he worked, and the homes where he spent time with his family. His Chicago story begins in 1912. He was a struggling writer, a new father, and an aspiring poet. And I'll let literary scholars Paul DeRica and Liesel Olson take the story from here.
3: In the 19-teens, the best place to be a young writer was Chicago.
4: He moves here in 1912. His then-new wife um, soon follows him.
3: Because it had such a rich kind of journalistic world, a lot of writers like Samber would come to the city, the journalism would support them, then also provide them the experiences that they would turn into their literary work.
4: He and his wife settle in a house in the Ravenswood neighborhood on Hermitage. Uh, They live on the second floor of that house. You know, it's a little outside of the hustle and bustle of the city. It's very leafy, and he feels like it's a good respite from his daily grind.
1: Private Letter, September 1912, to Paula Sandberg, his wife. It's been mystically wonderful lately, that backyard with a half-moon through the poplars to the south in a haze, and rustlings, always high or low rustlings on the ground and in the trees, a sort of grand hush. Hush, child. And as
4: the moon slanted in last night...
3: So he gets a job with E.W. Scripps, advertisement-free newspaper, The Day Book.
4: He's writing during the day. He's still covering politics. He's hammering out those poems at night.
3: He's writing poems as he's walking through the streets of Chicago in his head. We walk by faith and not by sight. And he liked to go kind of all over. Um, so he might stock up Clark Street, you know, across the river, and there he would find a whole string of secondhand clothing stores and cheap restaurants, because this was a neighborhood that was populated by, like, what was called in the parlance of the time, hobos and, and tramps. On the street, you can see them anytime. some with jobs, some nothing doing. And he would just kind of walk all around the city, sort of from end to end, and he would, like, talk to people and interact with them and kind of gather their stories. And this turned up not just in his journalistic work, but in his poetry as well. I wish to God I never saw you, Mac. I wish you never quit your job and came along with me. In 1912, that same year that he arrives in the city, Harriet Monroe launches Poetry Magazine.
4: Poetry Magazine would probably be understood as an upstart magazine.
3: At the time in 1912, if you want to read a poem, you could pick up a magazine like The Atlantic or Century, and what you'd find in it was generally still very kind of 19th century verse, very formal, very traditional. Monroe really wanted to create a space where new and emerging writers could be featured. And so poetry publishes works by newcomers like Ezra Pound and and T.S. Eliot, and then Early in 1914, she gets a batch of poems by this gentleman who's writing for the day book by the name of Carl Sandburg, including the famous poem Chicago that starts hog butcher to the world.
1: Hog butcher for the world, tool maker, stacker of wheat, player with railroads and the nation's freight handler.
4: The musicality of the poem, it's there, but it's, it's a very unmelodious musicality. Hog butcher for the world. Toolmaker, stacker of wheat, stormy, stormy husky, brawling.
1: husky, brawling, city, the city of, the of the big, big shoulders.
4: shoulders. I mean, he's hitting you.
1: They tell me you are wicked, and I believe them, for I have seen your painted women under the gas lamps luring the farm boy
4: There's this long litany, this and long list of all the things this person this, has been told about the city. True,
1: I have seen the gunman kill and go free to kill again.
4: And, and he hasn't been told great things. Beaten. It's a city ultimately filled with gunmen and and whores, Um, a city of incredible violence, of of hunger, of injustice. It's constantly working. But that, you know, what is it working for? For money?
1: Flinging magnetic curses amid the toil of piling job on job, here is a tall, bold slugger. Uh, there's such a celebration
4: of the energy of the city, that the fact that it, it just won't stop.
1: Laughing the stormy, husky, brawling laughter of youth, half-naked, sweating, proud-to-be hog butcher, toolmaker, stacker of wheat, player with railroads, and freight handler to the nation.
3: I think what drew him to the city were these contradictions. It had everything... It was great about the United States, the industry, the culture, the mixing of, of people from all over the world. But it also had rampant inequality, racism, what today we would call like environmental degradation as a result of some of those very industries that gave the city its wealth. And rather than take aside one way or the other, he held them both in balance. ¶¶ That batch of
2: Chicago poems, full of observations about Chicago's contradictions, made Sandberg a literary celebrity. They also earned him a little extra income, but not enough to quit his day job as a journalist. So in 1917, he went to work for a different newspaper, the Chicago Daily News. It was known for nurturing the careers of promising literary writers. Sandberg continued to seek out stories that captured the energy, beauty, and brutality of the city. He also traveled overseas to report on World War I. In 1919, just after the end of the war, he began reporting on conditions in Chicago's Black Belt, that area on the south side African Americans were allowed to settle. Shortly after he started his reporting, race riots broke out. The so-called race riots
1: in Chicago during the last week of July 1919 started on a Sunday at a bathing beach. A colored boy swam across an imaginary segregation line. White boys threw rocks at him and knocked him off a raft. He was drowned. Colored people rushed to a policeman and asked for the arrest of the boys throwing stones. The policeman refused. As the dead body of the drowned boy was being handled, more rocks were thrown on both sides. Fighting then began that spread to all the borders of the black belt. The score at the end of three days was recorded as 20 Negroes
2: dead. Journalist and author Cameron McWhorter discovered Sandberg's race riot reporting a few years ago. He was researching a book about 1919 and the racial turmoil that year. McWhorter was stunned by how prescient Sandberg's reporting was, especially given that he wrote the articles before the race riots even broke out.
5: Well, Sandberg, he he set out almost an outline to present his position on what he thought was going wrong and what set the groundwork for possible race riots. And he went out into the neighborhood. He's going to visit families. I mean, there's a section on Negro migration where he goes and visits a family that just moved up from Alabama. He meets a preacher on the street. In barbershop windows and in cigar
1: stores and haberdasheries are helmets, rifles, cartridges, canteens, and haversacks, and photographs of Negro regiments that were sent to France.
5: African-American soldiers had gone over in very large numbers to serve in Europe. And when they came back in their uniforms, uh, they received a lot of prejudice and a lot of resistance. Talk with the black folk and leaders of the black folk, and the thought that
1: seems uppermost is... We made the supreme sacrifice. Now we want to see our country live up to the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence.
5: He's talking about the impetus for migration, including lynchings. Housing was a big issue. Unions not letting uh, black people get in. The Chicago Defender was writing about these problems all the time. The African-American community certainly knew about them. That being said... It probably was surprising to the white community because they weren't hearing about this stuff. And he is a white guy walking around a black neighborhood talking about problems facing the African-American community. You know, no one else is really doing that at that time.
2: By 1919, Sandberg and his family could afford a quieter home away from the hustle and bustle of Chicago. They moved out to what we would now call the Western Suburbs, first Maywood, then Elmhurst. Sandberg still enjoyed the energy of Chicago, and he could take the commuter train into the city for reporting and literary events. And in the evenings, he made his way back to Elmhurst to be with his wife Paula and their daughters.
3: One thing that a lot of people don't remember about Sandberg is he became a well-known children's book writer as well. So he produced his Rutabaga stories, which were hugely popular, and those started out as like stories that he was writing for his daughters. His artistic practice never really Ends. Uh, it's present when he's doing his journalistic work. It's there when he's tramping through the city. But it's even there when he goes home in the evening, and he, he's trying to craft his poems, and he gets distracted by his daughters. And so he decides to tell them some stories before they go to bed.
2: Sandberg would eventually leave Illinois, first heading to Michigan's harbor country in 1930, and later to North Carolina in 1945. But he never forgot about Chicago and images of its people and places appeared in his writings over and over for the rest of his life.
1: Out of the payday songs of steam shovels, out of the wages of structural iron rivets, the living lighted skyscrapers tell it now as a name. Tell it across miles of sea-blue water, gray-blue land. I am Chicago. I am a name given out by the breaths of working men, laughing men, a child, a belonging. How
0: Thanks to Jesse Dukes for that reporting. You heard from Carl Sandberg, Paul DeRica, Director of Exhibitions at the Newberry Library, and Liesl Olson, Director of the Chicago Studies Program, also at the Newberry Library. We also heard from journalist and author Cameron McWherter. As you might recall, we've been sharing stories about how teachers, students, and families are adapting to all the changes this school year has brought. Everything from parents figuring out pod learning to teachers having to deal with Zoom bombing and kids doing their extracurricular activities online. Which brings us to the issue of internet access. The City of Chicago partnered with philanthropists to provide high-speed internet access to 100,000 eligible Chicago public school families. Additionally, CPS pledged to provide devices for online learning for any student who needs one. And we wanted to know how these programs have been going. So Curious City went to check in with residents at a community event in the back of the Yards neighborhood where we met Israel Campbell. His son, Alex, is five, and he just started kindergarten at Richard Daly Elementary Academy.
5: We didn't have really uh,
1: uh, internet accessibility at our house. We didn't have anything like an active line or anything, so they had to set that up.
0: Campbell says now that they received the free Wi-Fi connection, they don't have to use their phones as hotspots. And they were also able to receive a free laptop through his son's school.
5: So they made it very convenient for us to be able to keep our kids uh, educated during this problem, this pandemic.
0: His son Alex is in a bilingual program, and the teachers tell Campbell that his son is doing very well.
5: He's reading full books now, uh, the ABCs. He's able to count almost to 100 in English and Spanish.
0: (laughs) But former teacher Cora Butler, who we talked to on the corner of a busy intersection, says for many of the families she works with, Things aren't going as well as they are for Israel Campbell. She knows families who've been given computers, but she says many are struggling with the technology. A lot of the parents don't know how to work the computer, and so their child is getting pushed back rather and farther. Butler is a part of a community organization that helps parents become more involved with their children's schools. And some of the families she knows don't have basic computer literacy, so they can't help their kids get online. And she said as a result, the kids just end up not logging on for class. Well, for one thing, they're gonna be behind in their grades, and they're gonna get frustrated as it goes by because they're not gonna be knowing what's going on. They're gonna slip away. And Butler wishes there was more of a dialogue between the parents and the schools so these kids don't get so far behind that they can't come back. Oh yeah, I wanna see the kids to, uh, you know, to get in there and get their work did and graduate and all that. This school year is going to be a long road, and we're curious how communication between parents and school staff is going. Cora Butler has observed that it's not going well for some of the families she interacts with. How's it been going for you? Send us an email at CuriousCity at WBEZ.org, or leave us a voicemail at 888-789-7752. That's 888-789-7752, and we might just feature your story in the podcast. Isabel Carter contributed additional reporting for this episode. Curiosity is supported by the Conant Family Foundation. I'm Linnea Dominic.